0: Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. This week, we're talking about the difficulties of working as a journalist in exile, and many journalists are at the moment as war and conflict swirl the world. This interview was for another podcast called Double Take, produced by the centre I work at, the Centre for Media Transition. The abrupt fall of Kabul to the Taliban on August 15, 2021, marked a devastating blow to civil liberties and human rights in Afghanistan. And indeed, over the past two years, the Taliban have systematically reintroduced restrictions reminiscent of the 1990s, with journalism as one of the most affected professions. There's been a mass exodus of journalists from both the profession and the country. Of the approximately 12,000 journalists, both male and female, present in Afghanistan in 2021, over two-thirds have abandoned their profession. Alarmingly, more than 80% of the country's women journalists have been compelled to stop work. Reporters Without Borders also report a grim scenario. More than half of the country's media outlets have vanished. Surveillance and censorship of journalists has reached unprecedented levels and so have threats to their lives. Amongst those journalists who fled Afghanistan is Zara Nada, founder of ZAN Times, a Canadian-based news website offering opportunities for Afghan women journalists, both within and outside Afghanistan, to continue reporting on the Taliban regime. In this interview, CMT postdoctoral research fellow Aisha Jahangir speaks with Zahra about Tsar Times, the challenges of practicing journalism in exile, and the safety concerns faced by women journalists.
1: Thank you so much, Zahra, for giving us your time. I would like to start by asking you if you can introduce yourself briefly and, and share a bit about your background as a journalist in Afghanistan. And the reasons that led to your exile. Thank
2: you so much for giving me the time and opportunity to to speak. Uh, my name is Zahra Nader. I am editor in chief of Zan Times. Zan Times is an Afghan woman-led media that covers human rights violations in Afghanistan. Um, we started this organization last in uh, we launched this in August two thousand twenty-two, one year after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Um, and that's what, that the reason behind creation of this news um, website was we wanted to be able as Afghan women journalists tell our own stories um, and be able to uh, inform an audience uh, outside Afghanistan about the situation of women in the worst country to be women. Mm-hmm. About my background, I have been a journalist in Afghanistan Mostly, I started my work as a journalist in 2011, late 2010, and worked mostly with local media in Afghanistan. And later on, I joined the New York Times bureau chief bureau in Kabul. And of course, during my time in Afghanistan, I experienced discrimination on the base of gender, on the base of ethnic. um, And that was something that I do talk a lot about. Um, But when I moved to Canada in 2017, um, I moved to Canada. The situation in Afghanistan was was not good in terms of security and everything. And I had a son. So I wanted to be able to give the chances that I didn't have in life to my son so he would be able to go to school. My husband was in Canada. So we moved to Canada, where I am right now based. And when I came to Canada, I started my school. I did a master in communication and culture. And right now I'm a PhD student. Although technically I'm in a year off, but yeah, I'm a PhD student studying on women and
1: gender studies. With this definition of journalism evolving, you know, to fit and reflect the contemporary reporting practices, how would you define the type of journalism that Times does? Or in other words, where would you place Times on this broad spectrum of journalism?
2: I would say that this is a kind of journalism that comes from our heart. It starts with our sense of responsibility that first we start this work knowing that we have been a journalist in Afghanistan. We know the challenges, the problem that we used to face, you know, before the Taliban take over. But when the Taliban take over, one thing was clear for us that there is, we know who the Taliban are and we know how they treat women. So we know women will be the first group of people in Afghanistan who will be subject to oppression, to discrimination. And as right now, we can see they are subject to systematic erasure from social and public life. Um, And we felt that it was our responsibility to be there and to help women in Afghanistan uh, raise their voice and ensure that their voice is heard. Um, to, you know, like through the work that we are doing, our focus is to cover the lives of the most marginalized in Afghanistan, but particularly women. And the way we do it is we work with a group of women journalists in Afghanistan. To answer your question, I would just say that this is, our work is mostly fact-checked. So we go and we report about women's lives. We are connected with women uh, in the communities, women who are working in different provinces in Afghanistan. And they are able to to keep us informed about the situation of women. Mm-hmm. We don't go about what the Taliban are saying, because if we can see some of the media saying, hey, the Taliban are saying that they're going to do this, they're going to do that. We stick with the fact of what has happened, when, what the Taliban are doing, and how the people, the population in Afghanistan, are experiencing those policies.
1: Mm-hmm. So would it be right if I say, uh, from looking at stories that the Zang Times has covered um, since um, its uh, launch, that you focus mostly on humanitarian and peace journalism. Would that be right? I would just say, yes, this is an organization that we
2: specifically cover human rights issues in Afghanistan. But um, of course, our lens is that we try to cover the issues that are most underreported in Afghanistan. Mostly mm-hmm. is about women and LGBTQ rights. Um, and of course, about the environment that we don't even talk about. So that's the lens we use. Peace, of course, is, you know, like something that we engage with. But as far as I can remember, when I was born, there was a war in Afghanistan and I'm living and the war is still going on. So peace is something that is hard for us as Afghans to think about it and to just really feel what it really means, you know, like you have mm-hmm. to have an understanding. For us, it's hard to understand it, to grasp, mm-hmm. to grasp it. Yeah. Because we, we don't know, like, when we were born, there was a war and we don't know, like, it's true
1: meaning right now. It's, it's surely heartbreaking. I was looking at the website and I noticed that there are options in the English language and the Dari language, which is one of the national languages of Afghanistan, is excluding the Pashto language, which is also one of the, you know, national languages. A deliberate choice or was it a result of challenges in finding Pashtun women reporters to work for Times?
2: No, actually, it's interesting because we do have a lot of Pashtun women working for us, working with us. I have a great colleague. Her name is Prishta Ghani. She is, in terms of ethnicity, she is from Pashtun ethnicity. She's a writer and one of her books has been published. Some of her stories have been published in a book called My Pen is the Wing of a Bird. It's a collection of stories written by Afghan women. So my colleague has been published there, and she has been a long-time writer. So she is uh, one of our editors working for us, and we do have a female journalists um, who speaks Pashto, who is who themselves are Pashtun, and are working in different provinces due to security. I don't want to name in which province they are, but they are working with us. Mm-hmm. This is a very Question of in terms of like asking like why do we don't have a Pashto website? We are very interested to have a Pashto website. However, due to the financial restrictions that we have, we started this organization with our own savings. So we didn't start this with a funding with a project. So we didn't have the money to be able to pay. You know, like to expand the work because you need more resources, more people to come and work on the team. We didn't have that, and still we don't have it. So as soon as we are able. To have the resources, the means, we would love to have our Pashto website launched. This is in our plan for the future that we have the funding for it. It's not an intentional decision to not have a Pashto website.
1: Well, that would be very interesting to see a Pashto page as well. Speaking of funding, you mentioned that you started this initiative from your, from yours and your colleagues. They spent their personal savings. So how? Are you now financially sustaining this project? Do you have fundings from other organizations to keep this going on?
2: Yes, we, fortunately for us, once we started our work and showed that what we are really capable of, we started applying for grants here and there, mostly through the organization that are supporting media organization. So we have some small funding from organizations like Internews, IWML organization like Reporters Without Border. Afghan Witness, an organization like this that gives us small grants to be able to work on small project. Uh, mm-hmm. So we do have funding to, that comes through this organization that cover part of our um, work. For example, it helps with the paying the salary for our colleagues, but we still need um, funding in terms of being able to cover the cost of the entire cost of our operation. One yeah. of the things that we struggle to cover is, for example, like legal fees and also to be able to have insurance for our team that uh, are working, especially in Afghanistan. We would love to be able to have health insurance, possibly life insurance. But those are the, the things that is not in our reach because we started this work with our own savings and slowly we are getting these fundings, which is help us to survive, to continue the work that we are doing. But this is not enough. So Mm -hmm. we don't have um, the funding that we would love to have in order to deliver what we really want to deliver. So this is um, the best we can do with the means we have right now. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So I understand uh, that you talked about the challenges uh, of being a journalist in um, Afghanistan. And uh, it's no hidden um, fact of, of of the challenges that journalists and specifically women journalists have been facing since the Taliban took over. What challenges you faced as a journalist in exile, and specifically now that you've started an initiative that also engages Afghan women journalists to report from their homeland? Thank you for that
2: question. I think my problem is, is like I broadly can categorize it in two fields. One is, uh, so I started this work as a journalist. So I didn't have prior experience of leadership uh, of or media management. Mm-hmm. So to manage a team, this was my first experience. Uh, and it, this was a very difficult and challenging because the work uh, was online mostly. My colleagues are inside Afghanistan and also in exactly different countries. So it's hard to manage in the first place, a task force that are working online. Um, And secondly, we are working in an environment like Afghanistan, where basically, you know, like a woman going out alone is problematic for the ruling regime. They Mm -hmm. they would be arrested, they would be subject to, of course, many, many policies, many, many misogynist rules that the Taliban have created. Mm -hmm. So this is, of course, a big challenge for our team that's mostly women journalists working in Afghanistan. So we have to come up with ways to enable them to continue their work while trying to minimize the risk so minimizing the risk is not something easy so it's something that we negotiate every day of like do we publish this information do we not publish and when we are talking about safeguarding we are talking about two groups one is our journalists how do we keep them safe and then right. also people that we are covering the, p- the stories that our colleagues are collecting on the ground and uh, telling those stories. How to, mm-hmm. how can we ensure that those people remain safe? This has been the biggest challenge for me. Um, mm-hmm. And also beside that, like the issue of raising money. is like I don't have any experience in uh, fundraising. So it's very difficult to think about, okay, how do I keep them safe? And then how do I pay them at the end of the month? These have been two of my biggest challenge so far. And yeah.
1: Yeah. And so what about your ability to report on events that are in, in Afghanistan? Has living in exile impacted your ability to, to reach your network or report on an issue or in an event for that matter? I
2: think not very much. In some some cases, it has been even good because when I call from outside Afghanistan, I tell people, hey, I'm calling you from Canada. And like, this is who I am, uh, and I try to establish trust with them. Uh, Of course, it's very hard for the people in Afghanistan because they're scared, especially the people who are subject to rights violations. And Their family member have been killed. They have been themselves targeted. So it's very, very hard for them to come and speak out about these violations, knowing that any time the Taliban might be able to access them uh, and retaliate for speaking to the media. So it's very difficult for them. And sometimes in some cases, like when my colleagues are not able to talk to people inside Afghanistan, they share their numbers. So some of us from outside the country would call to ensure that first they understand that we are not in the hands of the Taliban you know that's very scary to think that okay if i am willing to talk to this journalist mm-hmm. who is inside afghanistan mm-hmm. and what if this journalist is being arrested by the taliban so mm-hmm. of course all the interview all the information will be you know in, at the hands of the taliban so that's even scary so but for us sometimes when i call i first tell them who i am where i'm calling from and sometimes it's a good thing because they are able to You know, like a sigh of relief that, yeah, like, okay, thanks God, she's not in Afghanistan. So if I talk to her, I know that she will not be arrested by the Taliban and this information will not get in the hands of the Taliban. So Mm -hmm. sometimes that have been a way for me that enabled me to continue and do my work. And of course, building a rapport um, is a very important thing, especially when you're reporting on issues that are very sensitive, the issues that can put people's lives in risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I think it has been, it enabled me to do this
0: work.
1: For the sake of my listeners, specifically those who are not very well aware of uh, the challenges of, of journalists in Afghanistan, specifically under the Taliban regime, what safety concerns do you have for them? What can the Taliban do to them?
2: Well, like, uh, I can't even talk about that because that's my worst nightmare is that if one of my colleagues is being caught by the Taliban, what's going to happen to them? So I try most of the time, avoid thinking about that because it's worse scenarios. We are seeing like journalists who have been in prison for months without the Taliban even stating like, what is their crime? But they have done to be imprisoned. So we have seen, we know the risk is there. It's up to us of how can we negotiate this risk in a way that our colleagues can continue their work while not being caught by the Taliban. So we started one of the policies that we have is all of our team members in Afghanistan should be using a pen name or pseudonym under which mm-hmm. they will be writing. And that's the name that they, when they contact the people, they will be using their own pseudonym, and as a way to establish connection mm-hmm. with the people that they will be interviewing. Because if they use their real name, it's very easy to get caught, you know, like somebody can tell to the Taliban, yes, this is the person who interviewed me. This is the information. So the first thing is about their name. And also we ask them to not talk about their work with us to anybody and uh, to their friends. So we don't want anybody to know that they're associated with us because um. being associated with a media like Times that advocates for women's rights, for LGBT rights, is not something easy. The Taliban particularly despise us because Mm -hmm. of the issue that we cover. So it's Mm -hmm. very important that we keep our colleagues safe. One Mm -hmm. of the measures that we have taken is also our team doesn't know each other inside Afghanistan. They are connected individually with editors outside the country. This is also because of their safety, because if they're in the same group, it's very easy to chat with uh, another colleague that's in another province asking no talking, and then eventually you know who they are. So we don't we didn't put we didn't take this chance. We put them um, we didn't never put them in a one single group where they can identify or talk or see each other's phone number. Um so they are individually connected with common in exile. And beside that, also one of the requirements is that we do not want them to speak with the Taliban. So if we need to get a comment from a Taliban officials, it is some of us from outside Afghanistan that will call. and and speak with the Taliban in order to minimize the interaction that some of our colleagues in Afghanistan might have with the Taliban. These are some of the ways that we are trying to keep ourselves safe. But I think to just say, like, it's easy to be journalists in Afghanistan. It's not. And especially for women, it's very difficult because they cannot go outside alone. Most of our women uh, colleagues, they either go out with their father, their brother, or their husband. (laughs) In order to be able to continue their work, and of course, it's it's very very difficult for them, especially yeah. for my in
1: Afghanistan. Yeah, we, we understand that safety is um, very important, and um, from your response, I can understand, I can see that you are um, keeping your journalists safe. Uh, and I know that there are some uh, cons to the fact that when you don't know your team members, but I think safety concerns are really important. I would. You, you talked about keeping them safe and and, and that they report and they, they do not even know each other when they're reporting. I was thinking how, how what's the frequency of reports that they need to file in? Are they required a specific set, a number of reports per month? How does that flow goes? Do you assign them? Do they pitch stories? How does that work? So the picking of
2: the story is uh, mostly between the journalist and the editor. So if the journalists have any idea, they will share their idea with the editor, and then the editor will bring it to our editorial team. Here, five of us will sit and we talk. The idea of is this a good story for us? Can we work on it in terms of risk? What risk this story has? Is it even possible to think about working on this? And if yes, who is gonna who would be able to do this work? Who should we reach out to? So the question like that. But sometimes when our colleagues in Afghanistan, they don't, they say like, I don't know what to work on. You know, like I don't have any story idea. It's, we suggest them, okay, we think maybe this story is a good one to work on. And we give them the idea and they will go and work on it. We don't have a category or quota to to per se say that this is like, we want you to work this many stories each month. And if you didn't bring it, there is enough punishment for you because we understand the security risk is there. So we, first of all, we make our colleagues to make that judgment, whether this story is something that they can work on it or not. If they deem this is too risky for them, this is something that they cannot go and interview people about or get covered this story. They would just say, you know, like I can't do this. So we will rework that story or assign it to somebody else who is able to work or like keep it for sometimes if you understand that none of our colleagues are able to work on this. So we keep that aside and see maybe in the future we, we might be able to work on. Um, mm-hmm. But this is okay. very much our colleagues make the judgment. And this is also up to like, you know, in, in the times that they are, So we tell them, so most of the way that we work is that we don't cover one story in one province. We have a, like, in a way that we pay attention to one issue in different provinces. So this way, even while we're working on one topic, we ask several of our colleagues who are in different provinces to
1: collect information about that particular story. Yeah, that just uh, raised a question about collaborations and partnerships. And, and I understand that sometimes Times um, did a collaboration um, with the Guardian, and I think the Fuller Project. Uh, I would like you. Uh, I would like to know about any collaborations that you have been able to do with other media organizations or journalists or even other institutions to re- to enhance the reach and impact of your reporting.
2: We have been uh, very interested in partnering with other organizations. We have done, as you said, we have done this with the Guardian and Fuller Project, and we have had the help of women e-news. They reproduce some of the stories that we have published and also impact news later in France. They also did translate actually to three media in France, did retranslated our work into French and published this so we have done some we have done some of those works but i think the main point for us is that we just started a page that's called like if you want to partner contact us because we do have the means the journalists on the ground and and if any media outside afghanistan is interested to cover some of the issues and the topics that we cover they can come to us it's going to be working two ways sometimes they have the story idea They just Mm -hmm. don't have the reporters on the ground to cover this. So they can come with the idea with us. We will discuss that idea of whether that's feasible for our team. Can we do that investigation or not? And then if we can do that, so we can publish that story together. And hopefully that media can also help us with the cost of producing that story. And at Mm the same time, for the other one is like, we are working, uh, we are all the time working on different stories And these stories that we are working, we can share them, like the ideas, we can share them with any media organization that's interested uh, to publish. So they can come and ask us like, okay, what ideas are you working? So we can share a little bit of the ideas. And if they are interested, we can partner and work on the story together.
1: Yeah, great. Can you tell uh, our listeners a bit more about the project that you did with The Guardian and The Fuller Project?
2: Yes. So this story was, we looked into the rate of suicide in Afghanistan, because even initially when the Taliban take over, we were seeing a lot of news about how women are killing uh, themselves individually in this province, that province. And of course, we noticed that these women were very young. And um, so we d- discussed and decided to work this as, a, as an investigation. Where We would be able to gather some data in terms of putting some numbers of like how many women are trying to kill themselves or how many women are actually have killed themselves since the Taliban takeover. We find this to be very, very difficult because before the Taliban, we would go to health officials and they would have been able to share some data with us if they collected them. But now we know that the Taliban, the official in charge are actually the one that prevent us from accessing such a data. So we had no hope that you will be able to access any data going through the Taliban officials. So what we did is that we used a very grassroots approach where we contacted and speak with health workers themselves in different provinces, in different clinics, mental health wards. We went and we interviewed different sources in order to make sure that what's the data. And first, one of the things that most of the doctors told us was that the Taliban issued a verbal directive telling them that you're not allowed to share any information with the media that the Taliban do not know about. So any media that wants to speak with the health workers, they should go to first the Taliban Ministry of Information and Culture, get a letter from them, and then go to the hospital and talk with them. That's how they told us Mm. that they've been told. And some of them asked us to do the, the same thing. But of course, that was not possible for us. Mm-hmm. What we did was to, since some of these health workers already knew us, most of us were journalists in Afghanistan, where we were working and some of the sources already knew us and trusted us. So we had not any we didn't have a lot of problem convincing them to share the data with us. But for some of mm-hmm. them who didn't have any connection, so it took us a while to be able to establish a trust with them. And, and ensure that they can trust us and also we can trust them, you know, like to ensure that they're not going to go and report us to the Taliban. Yeah. So we were able to gather some data from 11 provinces of Afghanistan where it shows oh. that in 10 out of 11 provinces, women were outnumbering men oh, in terms wow. of uh, actual suicide. An attempted suicide. Oh, wow. So that was a big uh, investigation for us, and it took us eight months. But uh, eventually we were happy with the result that it did bring some attention to the situation of women in Afghanistan and show that what the Taliban policy is actually meaning on the ground for these women. For example, because we have also hearing that most of the suicide cases that came to the hospital um, and some of the doctors have been told that if the issue is related to a family issue, you get the, re- like, the reason for this is like, you know, a family issue. So they don't usually report this, you know, as a suicide. And mm-hmm. also the society is very conservative. So they are not easily saying that, yes, this woman has been um, killed herself. Because of mm. the, you know, like suicide is being seen as a taboo and people are, and, and Islamic. So people yeah. are not willing to go out and speak about it. Um, oh, there's
1: a lot of stigma around it Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There is, there is. But then yeah. that
2: would also prevent people. So if we, if somebody died in the house with mm. suicide, their death is not registered anywhere that mm. we can go and fight, actually. Even if you go and speak to the family and ask why this woman, she was very young, she was not sick, why she's dead they would come up with some idea. They were not going to tell you that, yes, she she committed suicide. So yeah. that's the situation and the environment. And of course, if we were able to get the truth is much like,
1: you know, like the number, the scale is much higher it's than much we, can, higher. Yeah. we can yeah. Imagine. I would like to talk a little bit about your audience engagement. How do you engage with your audience, particularly the Afghan women, whether they're in Afghanistan or as diaspora in other parts of the world? And what kind of impact do you, hope to have on these women through your reporting?
2: Mm. First off, um, I think uh, about the relationship. um, I think I'm very fortunate to say that um, in the past two years that I'm working and covering women's issues, particularly women's issues in Afghanistan, many women have reached out to me uh, from, you know, in in different countries in in diaspora. And some of them uh, offered, of course, offered help. Some of them were struggling themselves. Some write their own stories and send it to us and say, like, this is what happened to me. Um, For example, today we had a story. This young woman actually messaged me on Facebook and she said, this is my story. I, this is this this is what had happened to me, and I need help, and I want to be able to tell my story. So, like, I connected with my team, and I said, like, write this, your, write your story. We will edit it, we will translate it, and we will publish this for you. Mm-hmm. So, this is the kind of you know, like, they would come, uh, and also like, we have email address. So sometimes they would send, send message to our email address. Sometimes they would reach out through social media of Zantimes. Times and send their story and, and what's happening and we had many women also asking for work they're saying do you have you know a job for me i i want to work and i really really need the work fortunately for most of them we have to say no because we don't have the means to offer them a job but mm-hmm. if here and there we can offer them you know like just a piece of writing that they can do for us definitely we we, we would ask them to to help us outside that I would just say that it's it's very difficult, even especially for the women who were able to flee Afghanistan. For the women journalists, they ended up somewhere that most of them doesn't know the language of the country they're in. They don't know uh-huh. the culture. So they have a whole new life in, fro- in front of them. And uh, they are heartbroken that what they have worked for, like, for example, if they were in journalism, they build a career for themselves in Afghanistan. That's mm-hmm career is gone. And they most of them, they have to start from scratch and they are often forced to do very precarious jobs.
1: I would like to know about technology in reporting as well, as as we understand that your team is dispersed across Afghanistan and the Afghan diaspora across the world. So technology must play a very important role. So can you share how technology has played a role in facilitating or even hindering, for that matter, your ability to to report from exile. What I mean to ask is how do you adapt to new technological developments such as open source intelligence tools, for example?
2: Oh, I think uh, fundamentally it's in, like this technology, social media and internet have a lot to do with our work because initially, as I told you, Our work is online entirely. So if we don't have internet, we don't have technology, that means that our work is not possible. So the one thing that made our work possible was our ability to use this technology and internet and be able to connect with each other, to talk with each other, to share materials and also work. Um, And also that's how also our colleagues from Afghanistan send the material to us. So of course, this is very important for us. Um, It enables us to, to do our work. Um, and of course, there might be a lot of challenge, the challenge with technology, because we know there's a lot of, you know, hacking, phishing that are, of course, very
1: new for us. And we are trying to learn. So how do you balance advocacy for a cause and then objective journalism? Is that challenging? Is this, is this even possible to navigate this balance, especially when you're reporting on issues related to one of the most oppressed communities in Afghanistan, which are women.
2: I think I also said this earlier that for us, we are one of the media organization that we cover the facts that are on the ground. So we don't speak about, you know, like this is what the Taliban are saying. Uh-huh. We cover what the Taliban policies actually mean on the ground for the people who are living those policies. For example, when the Taliban banned women from visiting outside, like, without a mahram, of course, the policy stated that 72 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken, 72 kilometers, they have to go as far as the 72 kilometers to be needing a male chaperone with themselves. But we know from reporting on the ground that that's not true. Many women... Have to have a male chaperon with them when they leave their house, even to go and visit a doctor, and particularly a doctor. There are many clinics who have been told by the Taliban that they should not be visiting any woman or treating any woman who come alone, who doesn't mm-hmm. have a. So I have personally reported on these issues. So it's different from how, you know, like the Taliban issue the, the decree, but then how it comes to be applied to the lives of this woman. And we cover this population because they don't have a they don't have really voice in the public sphere to make their own opinion, to just share their suffering of what's happening and how they are experiencing these days, these policies that the Taliban go and just issue issue, especially targeting women, what that really means in the lives of women, that's what we are interested in. And I wouldn't say that, yes, our work is uh, advocacy. But I really hope that this is what we do, I believe, is journalism because we stay with the facts of what's Mm. happening on the ground, Mm. not what we said about what's happening. And and also, but I hope that our work can lead eventually to advocacy where people can see uh, what's happening and take action. So our Mm. step that we hope to reach is to raise awareness. And from
1: there, we empower people to take action. To change the situation. On a last note, I I'm loving this conversation, and I can go on and on with this Zara. But I, you are living in 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 a Western society, and and so am I, and so we understand that there is a difference in how uh, non-Afghans or or people who've never been to Afghanistan are not very well aware of the culture and the politics. They understand the situation a bit differently. So, on the last note, I would like to ask you, how do you perceive the international communities understanding? of the situation in Afghanistan? And what role can journalists, whether in in Afghanistan or or specifically like you are in exile, play in shaping these perspectives, international community's perspectives and understanding?
2: Thank you so much for that question. The way I perceive the international community's response to the crisis in Afghanistan, is unfortunately accommodation of the Taliban. The way I see that is when the Taliban take over, they did not immediately ban all the areas of or all uh, human rights for Afghan women. They started slowly. the The in their second week in power, they banned women from working in public sector. In their first month, they banned women, they banned girls from going to school. And in four months, you know, they banned women from going out without a male chepron. So you see that slowly the Taliban were creating their gender apartheid in Afghanistan. What happened was that international community did not have a solid collective response to this violation of human rights in Afghanistan. And that, in a way, accommodated the Taliban, allowed them to implement their policies. Because when the Taliban issued one, policies that restricts women's rights in Afghanistan, this international community would come and issue a statement, different countries, different organizations stating that, oh, like, it's awful what the Taliban are doing is bad, and they should be reversing. But they never did reverse. Nothing happened. There was only words exchanged. This Uh country said that this should not be happening, but it had happened. And there was no action to punish the Taliban or to force them to Uh uh, reverse their policies. Otherwise, they will not be doing. So we know that the Taliban are the kind of group who came and talk about things, but they do as they wish. They want to build in Afghanistan. is not a human society. In that society, Uh to say the least, women have no role, women have no rights. And I think this should be seen as a... Crisis as a global crisis for for human rights for women's rights. Otherwise, if you only look at this issue about oh it's about Afghanistan, I think that's not the correct way to look at the issue, because what happens to women in Afghanistan it has consequences for glo- for women's rights globally. It brings the bar low of what could be denied to women and. There will be no consequences, as we can see with the Taliban. So that's Mm -hmm. what I see the response of international community. And I think the Taliban, it's not as it seems that, oh, there is no way to pressure the Taliban. The Taliban wants engagement with the world. The Taliban wants the money to be able to run their regime. There's a lot at stake. And I think the, the international community, if they can come together and make decisions collective decisions to, you know, face the Taliban and in a way that they would just say, this is not tolerable and we will not be tolerating this. Um, I think there should be ways to change this. uh, And that has not happened yet in the past two years. Um, And then we are hoping to be able to do that. Uh, To your second question uh, is that I think we all have a responsibility For me personally, I grew up in Kabul. I had rights. I was able to go to school. I went to university and I became a journalist in Afghanistan. That right is now denied to millions of women in Afghanistan. And this is my responsibility to fight for their rights, to ensure they have the rights that I, at least I had. Of course, we are pushing for more rights, but that didn't happen. But this is our responsibility to make sure that they have at least the rights that we had. And I think we don't need to do anything, you know, like very big to be able to bring wherever we are with whatever we have, we can start from there. And of course, at least for ourselves, we feel good that we did what we could um, at this difficult time and uh, to contribute to our society and to deliver on our promises and our commitment to our country yeah. and to our people.
1: And definitely, your dedication to journalism and uh, responsible journalism that you do, and and of course, indeed, your bravery as well is and is a is a is an example to all aspiring journalists in Afghanistan and in other conflict zones. So thank you so much, uh, Zahra, for uh, taking your precious time uh, and talking to Double Take um, um, here today.
0: Of course, thank you, Aisha,
2: for having me.
0: Zara Nade from the Zan Times for taking part and to Aisha Jahangir from the CMT. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics, and of course, everything in between. We're back next week with more. In the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU, and we're also on Threads. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.